Hello everyone and welcome back to the True North Podcast. I'm your host Benedict Rhodes. Harness racing, for those who may not be familiar with it, is a form of horse racing in which standard bred horses race around a track, pulling a driver behind them in the cart called the sulky. Some people often liken it to chariot racing. The fact that you may not be familiar with the sport is the very reason for this episode. Joining me today is Nick Barnsdale, a reporter for HarnessLink, to discuss the reasons for the pretty dramatic decline in the sport's popularity over the past several decades, and what can potentially be done to start getting people back to the tracks once again. We'll discuss all of that and more here on the True North Podcast. Very excited now to be joined by Nick Barnsdale of HarnessLink. Nick, how's it going? Pretty good, Ben. Glad to be joining the world-famous True North Podcast. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, it, we'll start off on a more broad note. You know, It's the, the start of the, the harness racing season in a lot of parts of Canada, or will be coming up very soon. Uh, how exciting is that for you, knowing that you know, the season's just right around the corner? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like um, We're about to start seeing some of the two-year-olds start racing in the next couple months, which is always what a lot of people look forward to. Um, some of the great two-year-olds returning as three-year-olds for like the biggest stakes. The biggest stakes are typically for three-year-olds. Um, so that's pretty exciting. You get to see kind of last year's stars come back and, you know, sometimes the dynamic shift, like, you know, for example, Bulldog Hanover, which some people may have heard of. Um, he actually at three, he wasn't, he was good, but he wasn't amazing. And then at four, he had probably the best season in harness racing history. So um yeah, to see those horses come back, it's pretty exciting. And also, you know, we're having a lot more tracks open up soon. Um, a little more workload for me, but uh, yeah, overall, it's uh, the summer is when the sport really shines. And uh, I know you cover races all, all over the world, so it's not really an off-season per se, but how special is it, you know, to know that, you know, soon you'll be walking into Woodbine or walking into a track for the first time this season? How, how exciting is that? Well, it is... Um... It is fun when you get to go and cover those big events. Like I don't always go to the track to cover my 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 races, but um, for events like the Camelot Classic over at London and you know the North America Cup, which I think is the uh, first couple weeks of June this year, it is pretty it is pretty cool to go in and see the atmosphere, like see a bunch of people there, and it's like yeah, this is what it was like during its heyday. Um, and now it's only a couple of days a year, but it is still cool when you go there and you see a bunch of people and there's a buzz and special events going on. So. That'll be fun. And uh, you and I know each other well, but for the people listening to the podcast who maybe don't know you so well, uh, maybe tell us about, about your background in the sport. You know, like I know your dad's and your parents are both very interested in the sport. Your dad's a, a prominent harness racing journalist as well. How special is that to, you know, bond with them over that? And how how far back, I guess, does your, your family history go in, in the sport? Well, it only really goes back to my dad's dad, who was a big um, horse racing guy, big gambler, uh, of course. Um, and he brought my dad to the track when he was a young kid. And then that cycle kind of, I mean, my dad's, my dad's dad passed away when he was like, I think 16 or something. But uh, my dad has brought me to the track basically since I was a little kid. Like you can see, you can actually see a picture of him holding me as an infant. And he's, he has a tenuous, quite tenuous grasp on me and a quite firm grasp on the racing form in his other hand. Um, and then there's another picture of me as a young kid when I still had very curly hair sitting in the stands, I think, at Mohawk Racetrack with a program uh, looking at all the horses. So, you know, I've been going to the track and, and definitely not betting since I was uh, a young kid. And so that's kind of my experience. Like, I've seen some great horses, um, some somewhat notable names, like some beast somewhere. And 
um admiral's express was a pretty famous one and sand pale i was heavily involved in and that was a probably the last really big horse that people got very excited about like i don't think with the exception of queen's plate day like sand pale you won't hear the crowd at woodbine any louder and obviously they don't have harness racing there anymore but um yeah that's kind of how far back i go and then back in 2018 when i was just starting when i just graduated high school and i was going into the journalism program with with the very famous benedict's roads i might add um i i got my first piece published in down the stretch newspaper shout out to peter gross and it kind of took off from there like i got more opportunities and then for my internship um i was offered a job with harness link which is probably one of the only probably the only site that has dedicated coverage from basically each continent except i guess south america um so it is quite cool to have continued that tradition like my dad actually went to humber as well and graduated from the journalism program the diploma program um, but he actually didn't get a writing job until around 2013, so probably around like 30 years after he graduated. And it started with a blog that he did for free, and then it slowly um, grew. And, and he actually won our award for written media excellence a couple of years ago. Um, so I guess it is kind of cool to be continuing the lineage in that sense. And uh, and yeah, it is um, it is cool to be able to share that with my dad. And uh, you mentioned a couple of names of horses there. Which ones are you kind of uh, looking forward to watching, I guess, in this 2023 season? Well, the upcoming season, um, yeah, there are some some interesting ones at two that are coming back and, and some good ones at, at three that are coming back at four that we'll have to go now into the open uh, to face horses. Unfortunately, we did lose Bulldog Hanover to retirement last season. <laughs> Maybe phrased that a bit wrong, but yeah, he, he retired after – probably one of the best seasons ever um i mean there there were a lot of talented horses last year and i, I can't really pinpoint one i'm super looking forward to but we had a couple canadian horses that won uh our divisional awards like war, awards for their specific age sex and gait that were pretty close in the breeder's crown which is um maybe maybe some people watching have heard of the breeder's cup and it's basically our version of that and so it is pretty exciting when you have those horses that were First of all, stars in Ontario in our own what's called the sire stakes, which is simply if a sire is on, is in Ontario, then you qualify for these rich races. And those horses, Adair Castle and Silver Label, are pretty exciting, um, especially because they've already started the season quite well in smaller stakes races right here in Ontario over at Mohawk Racetrack in Campbellville. So those are two exciting ones. Um, my dad has a few young horses that are coming up that he, he owns like a couple percent percentage points of them um so that'll be fun to watch them make their debuts at two um but yeah that that's what i'd say i'm i'm excited about for the season definitely and uh the main reason i wanted to have on this show is uh talk about your, your thesis project for those who, who've listened to the show before you probably heard me talk about my thesis project but uh first of all why don't you just uh i guess explain a bit what the project actually was and, and what sort of compelled you to write it so the main reason i i investigated this I did this article, which is about the decline of harness racing in North America is because I've always heard the stories of people in harness racing, essentially talking about the golden days, talking about how the stands used to be packed and how people would line up out the door for, for big race days. And they used to have these grand contests and it sounded so opulent. Like they, they got to do so many different things and they basically had 
you know, a lot of the market share in terms of North American sports. And they had almost all of it in terms of betting, especially in Canada. Um, we didn't have anything. And there was no other legal form of gambling. Uh, I think there's one that I'm forgetting. But basically, other than horse racing, there was nothing you could legally bet on until I think the early 80s. I think 1981 was when we had our first casino. So basically, if you wanted to bet on something, you had to go to the track. And um, since the peak, um, the attendance at Canadian harness racing tracks from the data that I was able to gather was in 1979 at around nine and a half million people attending the races in the course of a year. And the most recent data from 2005 was uh, about 3.7 million people attending the track each year, which is obviously, you know, far. Oh, sorry. That's yeah. So, so far, far lower. And of course I'm almost certain if you extended the data to 2023, you would see even more significant decline because I mean, just if you go to the track, you're not going to see that many people. And so there's a big, there's a huge difference from what I see and what people talk about from, you know, people that were around in the eighties and nineties, what they saw there, you know, and probably a, a even crazier figure is that um, in the U S and I wasn't able to, to collate the wagering data for Canada due to some discrepancies, but in the U S and I'm sure the numbers are very similar here, wagering from all sources went up from 1946, which is the first data point collected from around 1.75 billion for the whole country to around 15 billion in the mid seventies. And this is of course, inflation adjusted. Um, and so now today, which is obviously the basis for the rest of the uh, inflation adjusted numbers is back down below $2 billion. So it's been an insane crash of almost I think more than 80% of the wagering since its heyday. So knowing that and hearing all these stories, I really wanted to look at why this happened because I know I've heard various people talk about, you know, what they think it is, but I thought it would be interesting to actually do a deep dive because as far as I know, I knew there wasn't any other um, really in-depth invet not sort not investigative, but in a sense, um, you know, comprehensive articles in the topic. And I tried to be as comprehensive as possible um, in essentially it, taking a look into why harness racing went from, you know, a staple almost in American and Canadian cultures to something that most people of our age don't know exists. Yeah, definitely some some damning numbers. And we'll get into more of those as, as the show goes on. But, you know, the, the title of your thesis is, is Where Did Everybody Go? And and you said that some of those numbers are 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 not the most positive ones, of course. And uh, how do people in the industry react to your story? Uh, and, and what kind of feedback did you get from people within the sport? You know, I was actually somewhat surprised that it was pretty much overwhelmingly positive. Um, in harness racing, because it's an industry that is so um, weak right now and so under threat, I think we have a tendency to be quite defensive to any sort of criticism and especially among the administrative bodies and the executives in the industry, there tends to be negative reaction to anything that could be construed as critical of the industry or, or even presenting neg facts of the industry that are um, unfortunately negative. And, you know, that carries on to general fans, practitioners within the industry, drivers, trainers, owners, 
whatever. Um, but the response to this was almost overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive. I only got a few pieces of criticism, which I think were actually quite, quite, you know, valid, but most of it was people saying, you know, this is a great read. Um, you know, this is a, an important piece. We need to identify the problems and, and things like that. Uh, and I did have a few people also contributing their own thoughts, like on social media, um, responding to the article and basically saying, well, I think it was this, I think this, I think maybe the article could have discussed this. And it was all either quite positive or quite uh, constructive. So I think the response was great. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen any action based on my article and my article isn't prescriptive either. It wasn't meant to be like a, you know, this is what we need to do. Um, it was more of a, let's look at our history and let's, let's look at, you know, the sad things that no one really talks about that much. And so I think from that angle, I think it was, it was quite positive. I, I did get, um, as of last check around 4,000 views on it, which is pretty great. It's in the top 0.1% of all harness link articles, I think. So um, I'm quite happy with that. And, uh, we'll, we'll get more into the specifics in, in just a second here, but through your research, did anything really surprise you or anything really catch you off guard when you were doing your reporting for this? I mean, well, first of all, I was actually surprised that I was able to get data. Um, uh, someone, I believe it's Ann Chunko from the USTA, the United States Trotting Association, was very helpful. And she actually went through and scanned all of the all of what's called the trotting and pacing guides going back to 1946 for me and that was that was just incredible and that was not the other thing that surprised me was actually the results from the data um like the graph is it's staggering to look at how vertical it went and then how vertical it went the other way um over the course of about 80 years so the data was very quite stunning to look at to see the decline of the industry actually represented in a graph and in numbers because i don't think i'd i've never seen anyone do that before i've never seen people collect this data and publish it so i think also that was one of the strengths of my article was was this is something people really haven't seen before people usually talk about it in the abstract like oh i remember when people were climbing over each other at yonkers and you know ten thousand people came on a on a monday night at mohawk but you know to actually quantify it was I think something that surprised me at my ability to do with help, but also what the results of that were. Um, I think another thing that surprised me was also the number of varied responses that I got. There were some people that did have, you know, similar responses, but other people that said basically, quite different reasons for the industry and a bunch of different perspectives. Like when I talked to Ryan Clements for my piece, I know we'll get into specifics later, but you know, he had various different perspectives and he was very knowledgeable about some of the infrastructure industry and how that has kneecapped us. And I say us, because as I said before, the industry is very tight knit and we kind of view ourselves almost as a community, even in a sport, which is, which is entirely based upon trying to beat each other for money. Um, so that surprised me. And also what surprised me is how quite open people were about it. Like, I think I, I was somewhat expecting some of the sources I contacted to say, I don't know. I don't think there's really a decline at all. Like I, I, I would disagree. I think if, you know, look at this race day, look at this track, look at this photo and, you know, and, and deny it. But I didn't really get a lot of that. 
I got one um, driver trainer who said, you know, I think it's inevitable that it'll, that it'll bounce back, which personally I disagree with. I don't think it's inevitable at all. Um, I think it, it will really be a struggle in the future to fight back for relevance. But, you know, I did get a lot of people who gave me basically quite open and honest and, you know, brutally, uh, brutally, bluntly stated um, opinions, which which was great. Um, so yeah, I would say the fact that I was able to get this data and collate it was, was really cool and a bit surprising. And also the fact that I did get some very, um, truthful and realistic answers from the people that I contacted. You mentioned, uh, being brutally honest. And I know one of the, one of the first lines in your story is many people have watched their life's greatest passion become an afterthought in the public sphere. Um, how often is that kind of thing brought up if you're at a track or, or talking to people in, in the industry? How often are people talking about that? Or is it just kind of uh, a new reality almost where you, it's kind of just the thing you don't speak about? Um, no, I think people do talk about it in more of a reminiscent tone. Like, oh man, I remember back when, you know, there used to be 20,000 people coming to Yonkers on a Monday night or, you know, back when it's like, man, we used to have these really cool events that we just don't have anymore because there's no money or even people talking about, man, I missed that track that closed down. I mean, I talked to Rick Ciron, who is originally from Quebec and who started his career at Blue Bonnets. And, you know, he said, I wasn't expecting that sort of decline. And he talked about how he missed the people and the food most of all. And, you know, he moved to Mohawk, I think he said in the late nineties or early two thousands. And yeah, I mean, you do get a lot of people reminiscing about, you know, all the things they missed from back in the day. Um, and so people do talk about it and people do quite often like to discuss what's wrong with the industry. Typically it's what's plaguing it today rather than what happened to cause it to fail back in the seventies. But it also was somewhat of a gradual decline. So while there are imminent threats to the industry today and, and things that have happened over the past 10 years, such as the ending of the slots at racetracks program, there it was kind of gradual in the sense that that it was never a sudden thing it was never like it it was uh, funnily enough in in contrast to the title of the piece i don't think there were people that suddenly woke up one day and asked where did everybody go i think you know it is a thing we can ask now when you when you reflect on it but it was quite gradual and and if you look at the graph you know it does look somewhat like a very steep mountain but um if you really think about it, this is something that people have witnessed over five or so decades. So it has been pretty long and there have been people that have seen it all, but yeah, that's kind of thing. Like it is talked about. There are people who will just, you know, sit back and reminisce. And there are people who will, who will talk about, um, you know, what the problems are or like think back and say like, man, what the government took, took the funding away. That was a killer. Or when we enacted this policy, that was a problem. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's super taboo, but, you know, it also isn't really everyday conversation, I guess. And uh, you said a couple minutes ago that, you know, you don't think a, a swift U-turn is really inevitable. You think it's going to take take time to, to bring it back on the upswing. Um, you know, we're saying the sports may be in decline or not as popular as it once was, but in Ontario, it's still you know, a billion dollar industry. Uh, does that give you hope that, you know, people are, are still investing and, and hopefully we'll be able to go back on the upswing? I think it's really tough and it is hard to predict the future as most people will tell you because 
one thing that is very that makes the existence of the industry very tenuous is the fact that it is reliant almost entirely on government funding. If tomorrow the Ontario, the Ontario government said you're getting nothing more then all tracks but one I would assume would close down within probably a year. And that's the thing. So the government has given us given Ontario Racing this funding under the assumption that we're going to do something with it and Ontario Racing, which is the body that administers this funding to tracks in Ontario and programs and all this, has to give them progress supports. And I think, you know, if we don't see progress, that that funding could drastically reduce or disappear. Um, and we could reach levels of impending catastrophe like we saw with the ending of the slots at racetracks program in 2013. So I think also a main threat is that it is a very old consumer base for the most part like there are young guys like me and you know a few but for the most part the people that are keeping it alive are in the older demographic 50s 60s 70s like my dad who's in his late 50s now and that's another threat and i think if we don't do something drastic to make it appealing to a broad range of people then it will be you know it could be curtains you know in the next three or so decades um so i think i think my idea which i haven't really spoken to many people about but my idea is that it has to become more of an entertainment product uh like the nfl nba professional sports because if you go to the track you know most people don't have a favorite horse or driver or trainer that they cheer for they might say like oh yeah i like this guy but people aren't showing up to come watch them people aren't showing up to just cheer for them um so i think what you know we would we should and we do have some of the infrastructure for implementing a system that makes it so that it is plausible for people to show up and have something to root for because like most people have a favorite sports team uh, most people don't just watch it for the kicks and i mean if like i'll be the first to admit i would rather watch an nfl game than go to the track and just watch racing if i'm not betting on it right so i think what it has to be is a complete shift in the product the betting is the main source of revenue and as we said like it has collapsed by about 80 percent since the mid 70s and i think what has to happen is the business model has to shift to you know jersey sales you know what whatever the three sources of income for um for example european football clubs which is match day um ticket sales i think and you know i can't remember the, the three which is awkward because I, I brought up this example but you know what i mean concessions things like that and because it isn't really a revenue stream at the moment so and i do think we already keep standings for things like the grand circuit which is our biggest races we already keep standings for that stuff and it's like we could so easily change the marketing to just make it more of a thing like you know your guy from ohio is is killing it out there ron burke you know the best trainer of all time he's on top he's on top of the grand circuit standings and try to get people to become fans or even you know take more structural changes like trying to make this thing into a thing that's more like the north american sports like have a defined start and end to the season have rosters like say okay you're you're a stable now you have to lock in 10 horses a trainer and a driver and you're gonna have these set race dates that you go for points and get people to to come out and support these teams rather than come out and you know 
make $2 bets on horse racing. Like, I think that's the way to go. I mean, it would be easy. And like I said, you know, it would be a lot of work and there would be a lot of resistance to something like that. Um, but yeah, I think without some kind of a drastic change, the outlook is very bleak, especially considering we had another thing that speaks to the decreased relevance of it is that apparently the the association that ran racing in New Brunswick at Exhibition Park apparently offered enough of a lease rental fee to keep the land at Exhibition Park for the track and keep it profitable for the, the place that actually owns it. And they declined. They said, we don't want you here anymore. And so that's the thing. Like when your lease is getting declined for non-monetary reasons, like that's a scary thing. And so I think with the decreased relevance, with the decreased revenue, and revenue has held steady over the last few years, I will say that. But, you know, with, with decreasing revenue and, and decreasing, you know, public care for the thing, and as, as let's face it, as our poor consumer base dies, you know, things are, are not going to get better. So I think, yeah, I think it needs to be some kind of structural change to the product that can appeal to more people. And uh, what about, you know, in the sense of, like people like families for example might want to go to a, a soccer game or go to a baseball game what what kind of things can can horse racing do to to attract those people to come to to harness racing and what kind of unique things does harness racing have that other sports don't have well you know like i said like you could make it into an actual team thing where people will show up to support their stable um like they do show up to support their football team basketball team um but I think harness race could also have a lot more things to appeal to a broader audience. Like I think you could give away free bets. You could have more involvement from the drivers. You could do barn tours, which have all been tried, but you know, not, it's not super common. And I think if you made it into more of an event, which they actually are trying to do at a new track in Manitoba, then I think you could get more people on board and, and come not just for the races because the races happen. They last for less than two minutes and they happen every 20 minutes. And it's like, there's so much downtime. So I think you have to do things like that and have more of a presentation. Um, like I said, you know, I still think with these types of things, it won't move the needle all that much. I hope it would, but like, you know, the other thing is to increase betting. Like betting is our main source of revenue and, you know, there's a lot of options for betting. Like we don't have prop bets, like so many, so much of the revenue on sports betting is prop bets and things like that. We don't have that in Canada. We have one carrier of harness racing of, of racing in general that has a monopoly on wagering. And it's like, you know, it's a good platform. It allows you for all the, the basic harness racing bets, but they're not doing anything innovative. They're not allowing same, same, same card parlays, prop bets, um even like who's going to be the leading driver this track no future bets so i think there's a lot more we could also do on the betting front to appeal to people and try to get some more market share from the sports betting places and and you mentioned that's kind of leads to my next question about like gambling in general and, and online betting um i know you said in your story that you know the track used to be the only place you could really gamble um until yeah. you said the 80s i believe yeah. um but you know nowadays people don't actually have to go to the track they don't have to even watch the race at all even or they can, like, you know, every every sports on TV now is, is just full of betting ads. Uh, yeah. How can, how can, you know, the 
the harness racing and, and, and those tracks kind of draw people back into to betting on harness racing as opposed to other sports or other other methods of betting on harness racing? Well, yeah, like that's kind of the thing. Like I think you have to borrow a page from their book. Like there's so many props you can make for harness racing that we just don't do. And they have been tried. Like there's been a few instances of tracks trying these things. Um, but like you could do head to head horse versus horse, which we have tried head to head driver versus driver. Um, how fast will this race be over under number of wins for a particular driver in the card? Um, you know, how fast will the, will the quarter mile be? Um, you know, and, and you could even do silly ones, like ones that people can't predict, like the Gatorade color of the Super Bowl. You can be like, will the winner be um, a brown horse or, or a bay horse or, you know, a gray horse? And it's like, obviously, you can you can use handicapping your horses to, to deduce that. But, I mean, you can even be like, will there be more odd or even winners over the course of the card? You know, horses with odd or even numbers and I think that's a thing. And also there needs to be more general advertising. Like, I don't think people care to bet on horse racing that much because a, they don't know much about it. And B like, it's not really in their frame of mind. Like, you know, people say like, Oh, you know, I'm going to bet on the hockey tonight, but people aren't going to say, I'm going to bet on the card at Mohawk tonight, unless you're already in the harness racing circle. So I think more advertising in the mainstream is also necessary. And then you also need to improve the, the betting product, the, the, the amount of things that people have to wager on and also the rewards like in Canada, HPI bets rewards. And I might get in trouble for saying this, but HPI bets rewards are like awful. Like it's literally just collect points. Like it's the PC optimum points at the superstore. Like there's nothing else. Um, and so I think, you know, wagering in Canada, there, there's so much more you could do with it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you could spend a long time answering this question, but I'll, I'll give you a, if you snap your fingers and and have one thing change about the sport to change it for the better, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it counts. Like my idea of ch changing it into more of a team spectator sport is one thing, but obviously that's what I would do. But if I had to change one thing right now, apart from obviously like you know billions of dollars in additional funding, um, it would probably be, um, probably maybe to increase those betting options like i think even for people within the industry i think you could get a lot more dollars from them by you know making it more interesting to bet on like there's been just the standard bets from since the 70s and 80s we've added more like the superfecta or pick five or whatever but i mean we have not modernized at all in the past 20 years i would say there's been some interesting things but they're all such classic horse racing things that have just been changed a little bit i think when you implement prop betting and and things like that i would say that would be the one change i would make right now among like that's like he, that's like you know number one and down to 20 down to number 20 on my list is like you know things that are very close together like there are very things that are very similar importance that i would also change and, and maybe that's not my number one but that's the first thing that comes to mind is just you know, right now, the reality is we're a product that is dependent on betting and the betting options are lacking. And I think if we improve our betting platform, improve the product and improve the rewards system, which you, if you've ever been on a betting site, you know, they give you boost. And my dad talks about it all the time. He comes in my room. Hey, Nick, look at this boost I bet on, on, uh, 
the score and it's like you know we don't have any of that so i think if you introduce these these parlays these props and then you add boosts and you advertise it that is is the biggest change i think we could make in the short term and there's a lot of hard truths on this show and a lot of uh of, of, of things that aren't very exciting uh, but let's have a bit of fun to end the show here uh right. let's do a quick rapid fire round to end us off here all right uh, um first thing favorite harness racing memory start with an easy one um dang there's a couple but i have to say the one that first pops into my mind is sand pales 2011 british crown open trot win that, that's the race i was referring to before where you even at the queen's plate you might not hear it that loud like that's how hyped you were for this horse and i i was a part of the posse i knew the owner we called it the pale posse i was a part of the posse i knew the owners i was in the winner's circle so that's got to be a top memory for me uh, number two, you've written tons of stories over the years already, the harness racing and otherwise, but which one other than the thesis are, are you most proud of? Damn, that's a good one. Um, I, I don't know if I can if I can think of one off the top of my head. I mean, my first story was really cool to see in print. Uh, that that was a cool one. Um, I think I, I did a great feature on, you know, a baseball player who became a harness racing driver and won his first ever race um, a couple of months ago. Um, and so that was one I was really proud of. And, uh, and yeah, I, I guess I'd go with probably those two at the moment. And, uh, of all the tracks you've been to, which one is your favorite? Oh, um, I might catch a bit of flack for this, but for harness racing, I gotta say the Meadowlands. I mean, the new Meadowlands is, is amazing and it's a really cool facility. It's not something you'd, you'd think of when you think horse racing, cause it looks so modern. Um, my home track is obviously Mohawk and there's no place like Mohawk for me. But I would, I gotta say, my favorite track to visit is probably the Meadowlands. And uh, what about one track you've never been to anywhere in the world that you'd like to go see? What's on your bucket list? Oh well, there's tons in in Europe and down under that I'd love to visit. But in terms, of, I'll I'll keep it in North America. Uh I would probably say, dang, this this is a tough one. Actually, I've been to to a lot of the the big the bigger tracks. You know what? I will say I'd love to go to Vincennes in France. I'll I'll, I'll say that for maybe one of their big race days, like the Prix d'Amérique, uh, in in France, in in, in Paris, Vincennes would be cool. And the last one for you: dream interview in the industry. If you could sit down with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, probably John Campbell. He he's pretty. He's he's our Wayne Gretzky. It's like he's probably he he's the undisputed goat in most people's minds. So. I'll go with John Campbell. Well, Nick, I appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend, and uh, appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on, and uh, you do some great work over there at True North. Always look forward to the newest uh, newsletter. Thanks again to Nick for joining the show, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to check out past episodes of the show, and read Nick's in-depth thesis on the subject, which will be linked in the description below this podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want to be the first to listen to future episodes and read all of my written content, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts or at truenorthsports.substack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at truenorth underscore sport and on Instagram and TikTok at truenorthsport. I've been your host, Benedict Rhodes, and thank you so much for listening.